designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode 14. So this is what I am dubbing the beginning of season two. As you may have noticed, it's been a few months since I posted anything. And while I did take a little bit of a break and spent some time at the Getaway House and Shenandoah, um, which was a really fun tiny house on wheels, which actually was quite accommodating for me, my husband and our dog. And it's been a busy couple months. So while I may not have been posting podcast episodes, I have been having great conversations and doing a lot of really interesting things that will inevitably make it into season two. Some of those fun things include, I was invited to be a judge in the urban single family infill category for the Solar Decathlon, which is the annual national student competition that is put on by the Department of Energy. So it was exciting to be able to be a judge in the Urban Single Family Housing Division. So big congrats again to the Northwestern University team for winning that division. I also, uh, for the past year, have been participating in the National Trusts for Historic Preservation's Preservation in Practice Mentorship Program, uh, where me and another architect out of Atlanta, Desmond Johnson, we've been um, mentoring five Tuskegee architecture students every month for the past year. And so that program recently came to a close. In addition, I've also been invited on a couple of different podcasts. So I was on Contacts and Clarity with Jeff Eccles, also Entree Architect with Mark Arla Page. And I got invited back to UPenn to share my story um, with Randy Mason. So it's been a busy couple months and um, it's been fun. So I'm glad to be back though. I have a lot of really great conversations forthcoming. There's lots of great episodes that I'm really excited to share. So in addition to the volunteer work and the conversations, I've also been reading a couple books that have left an impact on me. 
So two books in particular are Cast by Isabel Wilkerson and Black Butterfly by Dr. Lawrence D. Brown. As I'm processing those books and as I'm thinking through them, you will see some reading remnants throughout the podcast this season. There are just so many amazing nuggets to share from both of those books that tie into all of the things that I talk about on this podcast. So for those of you who may have seen the image on Instagram that I posted that featured the teaser for season two, that was a photo of the getaway house that me, that we stayed at when we took a mini vacation. Uh, there's a link in the show notes if you're curious to learn more about staying at a tiny house on wheels. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Tangible Remnants on that platform. And I typically will post the first links to when the new episodes are live, as well as quotes and other items to connect the random thoughts that I have. So feel free to follow me there and reach out on that platform as well. Within the Tangible Remnants bio on Instagram, I did include now a link tree link that will take you to a bunch of the different websites that I mentioned, as well as my personal website, book resources, and a couple other goodies. So definitely check that out if you are looking to engage more. So some of the upcoming episodes that I'm excited to share with you will feature the full conversation that I had with Bo Taylor last summer when I was invited down to Minokin by the Minokin Foundation, as well as conversations with Kennedy Widers, April Drake, Pervy Irwin, Tanya Harris, and a couple other fun ones, which I'm super excited to share. All I'll say is if you are familiar with the band Hole from the 90s, stay tuned. I'll also be doing a couple episodes featuring some of the nonprofit work that I'm working on, as well as talking about some upcoming conferences and community engagement projects that are happening. So thinking about these past couple months and what I've been reading, what I've, what's been happening in the world and just life in general, the quote that, that resonated with me for this episode is by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. And that quote resonated with me for this episode, because in this episode, I interviewed the amazing Kia Witherspoon. And if you're not familiar with Kia, I'm just so excited for you to get to know her more. And this episode is, this episode features a candid conversation that Kia and I had about life, really, and her journey to getting to where she is and the impact of equitable design. Uh, She's been featured in a number of different publications. Most recently, she was featured on the June 20th cover of the Washington Post magazine. She is amazing and inspirational, and which you'll hear. So I'm going to read her bio just to give you a little more background on her. The design voice of impact and change, Kia Witherspoon, N-C-I-D-Q-A-S-I-D, has spent the last 15 years defying every design stereotype. The most damaging one being that interior design is a luxury reserved for a few. Her voice, advocacy for design equity and design practice have shifted the narrative, making interior design a standard for all. As an advocate and educator in business leadership, equity, and diversity, Kia has been recognized for her work and achievements by Interior Design Magazine, Globestreet.com, Crew DC, Building Design and Construction Magazine, IIDA, and ASID. Kia was recently conferred with an honorary doctorate from the New York 
School of Interior Design. I'm super excited to share this episode with you all. Her passion for creating spaces and her empathy come through so much in this episode. We talk about a number of things that you may not think are connected. We talk about prison. We talk about war. We talk about being a young Black woman starting a business. We cover a number of things. I'm so excited for you to experience this and to learn more about how interior design really impacts the spaces that we all operate in. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with me and Kia Witherspoon. So just a a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language. So if you have any little ones around, you may want to grab some headphones. And without further ado, let's get into the show. I'm so excited that you're joining me today. And so being the change maker that you are, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what started you on your journey to being an interior designer, a business owner, and what drives you. It's so funny. Um, what got me started on this journey? I think, especially the interior design, life. Right. I never thought out. I wasn't a little girl who was like, I'm going to be an interior designer one day. Not even a business owner at that. But I think there were two pivotal moments in my just growing up in my childhood that got me here. Um, the first one was when when I was going into high school, my brother got incarcerated. He ended up being incarcerated for 15 years. And that took me and my family on this journey of going in and out of prison facilities. And I remember very early on as a 14-year-old girl feeling like, oh my God, this is shit. Like, and I was just a visitor. And I was so it caused so much emotional turmoil and angst that it just stuck with me. And my family would have to do this journey for 15 years. And year after year, I would start to look at it from the perspective of other people. My mother the other mothers there, the other fathers visiting their kids, the grandparents, the children visiting their fathers, and then just the actual men, the people who worked in this prison facility. And it was this, and I didn't know what to call it, but I just remember feeling like, damn, no one should have to experience this. And it, and that was that, right? I would go on about life. I would go to college And then one semester, I would not get financial aid. And I had this light bulb moment to join the military. And then this is where the other kind of key moment of life happening for you, but not to you. Um, I got stationed in Wichita, Kansas. And then two months later, September 11th happened. And I was on my my first of five deployments to the Middle East. And I was at a bear base. Um, Al-Udid Air Base in Doha, Qatar, and I needed some privacy. I was 19. It was my first time out of the country. It's my first time away from my family, and I had no privacy. So I took some sheets. I hung it from the top of my tent, and I made three sheet walls, and that was the first space I ever created, and I bawled like a baby for 15 minutes, and it was something about how that temporary space, it healed me. It brought me comfort, and it brought me solace. And I would do that five, four more times. And everyone was like, well, what are you going to do when you get out of the military? I was like, damn, I want to do this thing where I create spaces for people. And that led me to interior design. Wow. And right, right. So wait, so, so it's a good story, yeah. right? But 
listen to what I just said. Tr- the trauma. I, I, yeah. Thank you. Right. <laughs> but I, I just said. Yeah. I had to go to prison and mm-hmm. wars to mm-hmm. realize space matters. Right. Not my house that grew up in. Not the community, but fucking jail and war. Right. It, it, that's why. Is that wow or is that like damn? Yeah. Exactly. And the fact that like you recognize the importance of it, even if it's more of a instinctual thing, even because it's, you know, it's not like when you were creating your sheets, I'm assuming it wasn't a, let me logically do this. I need, that was more like, I need comfort. I need to feel protected. Yeah. I need something right now. And like, that's amazing that you got there. Oh my gosh. And, and it, it, it was so good that I got there, but it just, it just made me think like, man, is, is this how people of color have to come to come by or come to good space, right. good design, elevated design? Is war in prison? No, that's not the way. No. That's not the way. Um, but that that is how I got to this industry is through this exposure to the, in, the justice system and military institutions. It doesn't sound glamorous, but I couldn't imagine getting here any other way, though, frankly. Got you. Wow. Yeah. And I honestly, I didn't know those things. So, that, like, I knew your military background, but I didn't, you know, thank you for sharing that. That's so dope. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wait, there was a second part to that question. To so more of the journey. So then, okay. So after you came back from more, then what? So I, I decided to get a big girl job, right? I moved to Philadelphia and I made a whopping $28,000 a year. I thought I was doing something and I learned really quickly that is not the way. (laughs) But I also learned that I have a beast of a work ethic. And I started out as a receptionist for this hotel management company. Mm -hmm. And within a year, I was able to identify a need that they had and convince them with a plan to create a different a, a job title and position just for me, right? And I, and I want to foot stomp that because I said I knew I had a good work ethic. Mm-hmm. And before I asked for them to do the thing for me, I had a plan of execution. Mm-hmm. And within a year, I doubled my salary. Nice. Um, and when I think about what I do today, it really is work ethic, execution, and knowing the value. I would stay in that position for a little of over 18 months because I, I was trying to get a formal, a formal degree in interior design. And back then you couldn't do that. And then this is when I learned another valuable lesson. I'm not motivated by money. So here I was this young 25 year old making at $50,000. And, you know, back then thinking that's something. And I was like to my boss, like, Hey, I want to go get this degree. You know, I know you have this need when you gave me this position, this was the plan. And I had the perfect type of first boss out of the military. Mm-hmm. He was white. He was white. He was rich and he was sexist. Um, <laughs> right. And, Cause you learn real quick how to navigate those types of environments. Yep. And I do what I did the first time I had my plan and he goes to me and looks down my shirt and I'm not a busty girl. So there was nothing to look at. Dang. He goes, yeah, exactly. He goes, we just gave you all this money and this title. You can either work for us or go to school, but you cannot do both. Hmm. Right now. 
right then I knew no one will ever tell me how I can move or further myself, my career or my path. Mm -hmm. So I quit. It wasn't about the money. Right. It was about trusting that there was something bigger there than making $50,000 a year. Right. Right. You know, it was probably one of the best decisions that I've ever made because I would have kept myself and then I would have started making all these decisions from a place of scarcity and just about dollars and cents. And not every decision in business and life, right, is about dollars and cents. Does that make, is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly fair. And the fact that you realized that at such a young age and were willing to trust yourself and the vision you had for your future instead of settling for the vision of someone else had for your future, that's amazing. Yeah. It, it, oh, so I'm going to give you an out. Um, I say, is that fair? Like all the time. Um, my, my therapist tells me I strive for fairness. It's quite weird. So you could be like, no, girl, that ain't fair. <laughs> um but it wasn't about the money. And I just knew, I knew I would plateau. And yeah, it was one of the best things I ever did. And I, I went back to school mm-hmm. full time. I got a degree from an all women's college named Moore College of Art and Design. Oh, again, one of those things that I didn't know when I went to this school that it was an all women's college. And that ended up being the thing I just adored about it. Um, really? Oh, God, yes. It kind of backfired in a way because the environment was so inclusive and supportive and encouraging and enriching and uplifting. It wasn't competitive. Gosh, I'm tearing up thinking about it. Aww. But then you get in the real world and it ain't like that, sis. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. I know everyone thinks women are holding hands and wearing their pink pussy hats mm-hmm. in real life. But that's not what's happening. But I was in this just amazing environment at an all-women's college. I got to study abroad for a semester. It was glorious. It was glorious. After I graduated, I moved to D.C. And, you know, I I worked for a firm for a few years. I did high-end residential and I did high-end multifamily. And again, um, I learned money isn't everything for me. And I was working at this multifamily firm and I was really just burnt out. I was burning out so early in my career. I was like, is this the way? Is this it? Really? Is this? And I just couldn't believe I had just spent all this money to be immediately feeling like underappreciated and undervalued. And one day my boss was like, Kia, you just don't seem like you're present. I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> so I quit. I gave properly. Right. Um, I gave my I gave my two weeks notice. And I was about to go down this path of looking for firms where the leadership looked like me. I wanted to work for a design firm that had leaders who looked like me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know how that turned Mm -hmm. out. I do. Um, (laughs) You start your own thing. (laughs) And that's what I did. And people always say, like, like, how do you know when it's time to start your own business? Nikita, when I say I felt it in my soul. Yep. This was the only path. There was no plan B. This was it. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I say it because I didn't have six months of my salary saved up. I didn't have a business plan. It was an unwavering feeling that this was the way. This was the way the path was supposed to unfold. Right. And that was almost 10 years ago. Oh, I so love that you took that leap and you did it because that's amazing. 10 years, 
you made it. Particularly when you, you know the stats of like small businesses and how often they fail and all that sort of thing, particularly small businesses of color. And so I just want to celebrate you for just a minute. The fact that you're at 10 years, that is amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. That's awesome. And, 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 and this is what I tell people and we, we hear this thing all the time about black exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. I was a C fucking student, like all, <laughs> like middle school, high school, college, back when you could get C's in college, right? Right, right. Um, so it wasn't like, I, I didn't plan this. Mm-hmm. I felt my way through it and I just trusted every decision I made along the way. And I, and I tell people all the time, sometimes like my ignorance is bliss. Right. They'd be like, well, you know, it's always been done this way. And I'd be like, but why? Right. Right. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. But why? I didn't know the things I didn't know, mm-hmm. which worked out in my favor because I was able to do things my way. Exactly. And then it's also like, I know when I was running my business, there were a lot of things that had I known at the time how much work and all that stuff it was going to be, I would have, the fear of it would have, I totally would have talked myself out of it, but not knowing, yeah. and exploring and learning as I was building it. And th- that whole process, it was, I was very grateful for it, but it's one of those things where like, to some extent, I'm glad I didn't know everything from the beginning because that would have made it too overwhelming. <laughs> Right, right. Like, oh, uh, what you what you won't do is uh... right. Exactly, exactly. So it was enough of a framework to step out and do it. And I kind of think of the analogy of like when you're driving from DC to New York at night, you don't need to see the full path. You just need to see as far as your headlights. So it's like you just keep going that little bit, and you keep doing what you can, going as far as you can see, and then seeing what happens once you get to that point, and just keep on Absolutely. making steps. Yeah. Yes. And you got to trust the process. Yep. That was a big part of it for me. And so I love that you're, you named your firm Determined by Design and I love it on your website right now. Your why, which is speaking to me so much. And um, Mm. so it says design advocates to advocate for design equity. So every person's value is uplifted by the spaces they inhabit. I Mm. love that. Say more. Thank you. Thank you. So, so I think it goes back to my childhood, right? And those really two visceral experiences. Mm. Now, talk talk about naivete is bliss. So the first project I did when I started my business was a nonprofit project for domestic violence survivors. And yes, I said I quit my job with no money saved up. And the first work I do is free work. Everyone thought I was freaking insane. And I ended up doing this project. It was for 12 women and 32 children who lived in transitional housing here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I do that project. And I, and it was a multifamily project. So that was my wheelhouse. I do this project and I'm super excited. I go in there all exuberant to work with these women. And they're like, first of all, calm down, sis. Um, <laughs> second, and then and then they go, we don't need this. And I was like, I was so taken aback, right? I didn't think it was rude. Again, it just goes back to, they didn't know. Right. So it became this just unrelentless effort to immerse them in the design process, right? And in doing that, it went from, we don't need this to, oh my God, someone would do this for us. Is this something I could do one day? I thought I could only right. I thought I could only see this on TV. And when people think about design, they always think about the big reveal. Mm-hmm. And we had that. 
But when we finished this project, the woman came up to me and said, Miss Kia, when I walked into this room, I realized change was possible for me. That's beautiful. And, I, that and, it, beautiful. and it just, it stopped me because it brought to mind what I knew. The mm-hmm. people who need access to well-designed spaces the most, they don't know they don't have it. They don't know they need it. And they don't have an advocate. Mm-hmm. So I built my entire practice around being that advocate. And that is what design equity is about. That is what Determined by Design's mission is rooted in. Bringing interior design to those who don't know they need it and that they deserve it and that it can change their lives for generations to come. I love that because it's one of those things where... I feel like interior design often is thought of even more niche than architecture, where it's more like, oh, Oh, yeah, architects do the base building and okay, well, but only bring in the interior design if there's budget for it, if it's a high end client, like there, there's such a perception, even for me in terms of when do you bring in an interior designer versus when do you let the base building architect handle it? And like, what is luxury? And so like, that's one of the reasons why I love talking to you and just learning more about the work that you're doing. And this is the thing. Interior design isn't a luxury. I I think industry has just marketed it that way. And I'm trying to disrupt that. If you're on, if you're on our website, right. Mm -hmm. You'll see that our work doesn't look like your typical affordable housing project. It looks like it could be, you know, a luxury multifamily, a a lobby in in a commercial space. Because for me, design is accessible if you force transparency and if you bring us to the table early. Right. Right. In the space that we operate in, most of our development partners, they didn't know. They assumed, oh, if we bring in an interior designer, it's going to jack up the cost. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm going to throw a little shade now, not to you. <laughs> And then it's our then it's our architectural partners. Oh, we don't we don't do interior designer on you on these types of projects. What are these types of projects? Like affordable housing, affordable housing that's in black communities with inadequate design spaces. You don't use an interior designer on these project types for these people, but you should because the design outcomes are less than. Yeah. And we and it's constantly this educating. Uh, this ain't the way. This ain't the way. Right. And it's interesting for me, even just kind of as the a project architect, I don't always think of like, oh, well, we could outsource that or we could bring in another partner. It's more of a, oh, we can just handle this in-house. But sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. And so it's just expanding. Uh, you, thought, you, you know what I mean? You always, you always can, though. And, and this is how I know that's possible. On, on the project where we come in early, mm-hmm. We are able to, and I'll give you an example. Let's let's think about any multi-unit type of building, mm-hmm. right? That could be an apartment building. It could be a dorm. It could be a hospital. It could be a hotel, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the finishes you typically see at the entry of a multi-dwelling building? So it's typically going to be some sort of either ceramic tile, perhaps, or some LVT. 
So the flooring is going to be mm-hmm. some, something resilient. And then mm-hmm. it's going to be some sort of, uh, you know, the lobby space might be some sort of carpet. The elevator mm-hmm. will have more resilient flooring. Then there'll be some sort of drywall, mm-hmm. some type of lighting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yep, we're tracking. So the, you, you go down your corridor, you go into the entry of said unit. You mm-hmm. typically see a light fixture, some mm-hmm. signage, maybe a decorative accent paint, maybe a decorative wall covering. Maybe. Yeah. The unit, right? That's typically what's in the budget. Fair? Yep. We just designed a project a couple months ago, and we had all those things, mm-hmm. but we had tile, porcelain tile, at every unit entry. Hmm. At 106 unit entries. And wait for it. Now, if this isn't, you know, if your audience is probably the architectural community, they'll understand this. And a Schluter strip. Schluters add cost. Yeah, they do. And ask me, did it get VE'd out? I'm assuming it didn't if y'all had it. It did not. It did not. Because we were on the project early. Nice. And this is and this is an affordable housing project. And I tell that story and I use the unit entry specifically mm-hmm. because that's where things get watered down the most. Right. But because we are so good at what we do, how we design with integrity and intentionality and a concept, we are able to, this is affordable. You mm-hmm. just have to engage us in the process differently and early on. Got you. It's possible. Yeah. And so then in terms of the scope of what your interiors cover, talk me through that. Is it everything from f- like flooring material and color selection and walls or? Oh, yeah. I, so the, the first thing that we do is we start with the design concept. We do not make any design decisions until we have done a deep dive into the community's history, background, sometimes going back up until the pre-settlement days, right? Mm -hmm. And we find the foundation of that community. We develop this phrase and this narrative that then guides every decision that we make. And that then dictates what we put on the floor, on the walls, the ceiling treatments, the light fixtures, any architectural elements, the millwork, banquet, design details, big moments. Mm-hmm. At this point, we're literally pulling off of the base building and designing all of those elements. And the way our projects go, it's not even till sometimes in another 24, 36 months that we get into the furnishings and the art, right? So as an interior designer, people often assume it's just that furniture piece, which exactly. is a valid, which is a valid and very important piece. Mm-hmm. But it's also the designing of elements. It's space planning. Because a lot of times our architectural partners, they are managing all the other things and all the other people. Right. And it often requires that we modify the actual space plan quite a bit. It requires that we do so much more. And for us to make those types of changes, we have to be on the project early to coordinate them with all the other disciplines and, and be priced in the, in the general contracts as GMP. I mean, these are all things that we're thinking about as an interior design firm, especially in affordable housing. Um, And we have the biggest soft costs. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, I love that you have that focus on it, particularly because the way that you're talking about the need for interior design and high design to be incorporated into affordable housing, I feel the same way about affordable housing and sustainability. Like there's no reason Mm -hmm. for people with lower incomes to have to be paying more on their utilities because the building is poorly designed or not operating efficiently. So it's like, I love that it's both the aesthetics and the function of the building and making it work together. Oh, and I think that's the thing. Industry has made sustainability this this luxury, right? And it's like it you, shouldn't be. You 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 should do it just because exactly, right? Because it's good design to do it sustainably. It's, it's good design, and it's also equitable. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is how we challenge a lot of you know pushback. We lead a lot with empathy, and what that means is we'll 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 have a development partner who will say, you know, we don't want to do that design solution because it's too nice for these people. That Don't cringe, don't cringe, wow. don't worry. That was, that was a lot worry. of cringe, though. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But this is how we do that. Mm-hmm. We internally react, mm-hmm. but then I ask them to think about a space, and, this, and we can pick on a multi-purpose room. A multi-purpose room in an affordable housing building is usually folding tables and chairs. Right. And the de- developer will want every type of activity under the sun to happen in this space, right? And I will say to them, well, you know, birthday parties, baby showers, um, Mm -hmm. uh, possibly uh, some type of programming. And then I'll say, well, tell me about a space, what the space looks like if you were going to have a birthday party for your kids. What does that look like? And then Mm -hmm. they start to describe the room. It has natural light, it's soft, it's flexible, it's this, this, and all these, it's all these things, right? And then I show them a picture of a typical multi-purpose room that has some pretty shitty VCT, bad lighting, no windows, folding tables and chairs. And I say to them, is this a space you would want to have a birthday party for your kids in? And they go, no, no. Oh my God, no. Mm -hmm. And then I say, well, why would the 32-year-old woman who works at the Safeway with two kids, why would she want this space for her kids? They're like, no, no, no. She shouldn't have that. And nice. then this is where I get, this is where I get them. <laughs> I said, I said, well, I just pulled this image off of your website. This is a project you finished two years ago, right? Mm. And they're like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Step people, your game up, yeah. <laughs> pe- people don't change their minds about something until you present it in a way that could affect someone that they care about. Right. And that's where these empathy exercises come into play. But typically, my architectural partners, right, they don't have, I want to say part of my language, but it just is what it is. They don't have the balls <laughs> to say that and speak up because it's not their community. Mm-hmm. Is this the 50 plus year old white man who's been working for the same architectural firm for 20 years since he was an intern? Do you think he's going to challenge that developer partner to do better? because it requires an equitable design outcome. No, because he can't see his grandmother, his brother, his loved one, his sister, his somebody living in that community to say, that ain't good enough, bro. You have to do better. And this is the part where from a business perspective, people think like they say, oh, no, no, we can't bite the hand that feeds us. I'm like, oh, I do it all the time. And we're very lucrative. We're very successful because our our why is not the money. It's the people. And business, good business is about people first and foremost. 
Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. And it's funny. So as you're saying that, I'm just, I'm smiling real big because I'm like, you're reinforcing how much I love the current firm that I work for. Cause like in our housing division, we have these conversations. I'm like, yep, I'm in the right spot. I'm just smiling so big right now. Yeah. And I love that. It, it, and, and from a business aspect, it's like as an interior designer, a luxury service, mm-hmm. we have been so hyper-focused on affordable housing and going after a market segment or a client type that most design interior design firms didn't want to touch. Yeah. And we were doing it so gloriously. And I like to spread the gospel, right? Yeah. You know what you can do great design work in 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 low income communities and still make good money, right? Exactly. No no and, one's told anybody that. And the number of affordable housing developers that are doing these developments, getting all these low income housing tax credits, they're not just doing it out of the kindness of their heart. It is a lucrative yeah. business. Affordable housing, yes. particularly on the on the development side, is lucrative. So it's 100%, lucrative. 100%. And, and this is where as designers, we have to do better mm-hmm. and realize that, you know what? Our development partner, they're going to be in it for the money mm-hmm. and that's okay. But as A&D professionals, we are creative and service providers to the people yeah. and to serve people requires fearlessness, transparency, mm-hmm. and speaking up when it's necessary, period. And we yeah. need, I think our industry needs to be constantly reminded of the reckoning that they need to do to create better design outcomes. Yeah, agreed. And like, it's one of those things where the number of architects that I've run into, the number of designers that I've run into who have a, oh, we're just designers. We don't deal with the social side of it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Design is absolutely social, has a huge social impact. But you're absolutely right. Like designers needing to step more into that space and advocate for who they're designing for like you're doing. How, how can design not be social? Right, people, exactly. When it's about people, right. like that doesn't make any sense. Right, agreed. And it's like, we're not just designing buildings for the void. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. So well, this has been amazing. And I am, I'm just so excited to talk to you. So is there anything else before we wrap up that you want to touch on? Oh, you know, I want to come back to what you just said for a second about mm-hmm design isn't social. And especially now, because, you know, we use this word a lot, still design advocate, advocate. And you see industry talking about social justice design and this and that. Right. And it's all, it's almost like we're, we're doing a disservice by further saying or reinforcing that language is to design for low income people or, or economically challenged communities. Mm-hmm. It's advocacy. No, nah, right. man, this should just be the work that we do for all. Right. And and we we really start to look at, I've, I've been really, you know, pinpointing when people use words like, well, for this community, mm-hmm. we wanted to do a dignified space. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. and then, I, then I'm like, let me get this right. You know, the white homeowner, doesn't go to the design professional to say, we want a dignified space for our kids. Mm-hmm. But yet that's the benchmark we create is dignity for low-income communities. And that's not the way. So that's why we are very specific 
when we say elevated design outcomes. It's not about dignity. It's about service. It's about equity. It's about creating spaces for people where you can't tell the difference based on their socioeconomic standing. And design is inherently, it's for us all. And when we design for demographics, we don't see the people, we don't see the communities, and we don't see how we can do better. Right. Exactly. Is that fair? And that makes a lot of sense, particularly when it comes to affordable housing. Just because you you don't have as much money doesn't mean that you don't deserve beautiful things. Yes. As designers, we know that beauty really can elevate the soul, the mood, the feeling. You feel different when you're in a beautifully designed space. There's no reason to not be able to make that more equitable for everyone. Absolutely. And, and I think it's so funny because COVID, you know, COVID happened and I think it created this reckoning. Yeah. Um, we all had to spend a lot of time indoors. Mm-hmm. But it, was that experience equitable? How 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 much more traumatic could it have been mm-hmm. for someone in a house in a in a, an old housing project? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's why people need to realize space matters so so so. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that idea of uh, we're not all in the same boat. We're in the same storm, but some of us are in yachts, some of us are in rowboats, and we're uh, we're not all in the same boat. No, mm-mm. but we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. We're gonna exactly. get there. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day I, i i don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one God. that came out of nowhere. 
It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.